Good morning, church. It's good to hear you all singing. Thank you, Ben, for leading us to do that this morning. And it's a privilege to be able to be ministered to by uh, Pastor Caleb and Pastor Kevin as they participated with us this morning also. And uh, may God be continue to be glorified among us as we continue in worship. That's one of my favorite songs to sing before uh, engaging in the preaching of God's Word. And it's been a while since we've sung it, so I'm really glad for its inclusion this morning. I was packing my three-year-old into the car on the way here this morning, and he looked at me very seriously as I was strapping up his buckle, and he said, don't speak loud today. (laughs) He didn't say long. He said loud. So I'll have to ask him afterwards if I've failed his expectations or not, but. In the world of music, there is a term, some of you will know this, the term is overture. It's used in different contexts, but in the realms of opera or ballet or albums or orchestras and musical scores, an overture is the first piece of music that an audience hears. Coming from the French word for opening, The overture introduces melodies, harmonies, and movements that the audience will hear throughout the performance. The overture is a taste of what is to come. It creates expectations. It tunes the ear. It prepares for the musical themes that are to follow. As we continue in Genesis this morning, we come to a theological overture. In the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, and I'll tell you where to turn in a minute. In the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, we encounter a taste of what is to come for those who would come after him. And in this, we are prepared with eager expectation for the themes that follow in Scripture. Themes that grow in beauty and in volume since the time of Jacob to reach our own ears, and themes that we are waiting to one day crescendo in glorious, never-ending finale. So I'm calling this episode in Jacob's life the Exodus Overture. Because in it we begin to hear salvation themes that resound in and through the lives of God's people in the first Exodus in and out of Egypt at Passover. But that score doesn't stop there. Continuing in and through the lives of God's people in the second Exodus from sin, death, and Satan at the cross of Jesus, our Passover lamb who has died. In this Exodus Overture, God is expressing to us that he, that is Yahweh, is the God who saves. Yahweh is the God who saves. But is that the anthem that our ears are tuned to? Someone once asked me a most fascinating question, and now I ask you. It was my uncle, and he said to us, a group of us once, what songs or what pieces of music do you associate with life's most significant memories? Music and memory are deeply connected with certain notes and certain words stirring up recollections from our past. Sometimes those will be memories that we will love to recall. Sometimes those will be memories that we would rather forget. Yet amidst all of these, as we hear an overture of Yahweh's salvation anthem this morning, I want you to ask yourself, Is this song, is this theme, the song and theme of my life? Do the musical lines of this overture reverberate in my heart and my mind and my soul and provide the source of my strength and then echo out into the lives of others? As we hear three musical lines that make up this salvation overture, I'm going to ask that question in different ways as we work through the passage. But first, turn with me to Genesis 31. If you aren't already there, Genesis 31. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of that uh, chapter and work our way down to the end. So Genesis 31, beginning in verse 22, down through verse 55. You can listen along as I read. You can follow along as I read. But before I do that, as is our practice, let's pray and ask for God's help before we come to 
the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, again this morning we rejoice and are glad that you are the God who speaks. You are not silent. You have told us who you are. We heard about your eternality and infiniteness and majesty at the beginning of our service. We heard of the the wonder that we can call upon you as Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And you have told us of the salvation that you have wrought that you might have a people for yourself to the praise of your glorious grace. I pray that you would help us to hear this as we read your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring our lives into line with what that it expresses. So search our hearts, Lord, we pray. As your word is preached, give help to preacher and hearer alike, I ask, that as we sung, your name would fill the earth and the church would be built up, that we might make much of Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 22, reads as follows. When it was told Laban, this is Jacob's uncle, on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? 
Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and and let it be a, a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he called it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Again, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in verse 22, we pick up in a very tense moment in the life of Jacob. Twenty years earlier, as he alluded, he fled from his own household because his brother wanted to kill him for deceitfully stealing his blessing. He arrives in the the area of his uh, his mother's side of the family, his uncle. He works for seven years for his uncle, for the hand of his younger daughter, Rachel, whom he loved. And Laban tricked his nephew into consummating a marriage with his older daughter, Leah, instead. So backed into a corner, Jacob agrees to work for seven more years so that he could marry Rachel. And those seven years were a contentious debacle as Leah and Rachel warred over Jacob's love and he would have Jacob's children. And in the end... Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter by four different women, two of whom seem to be forced surrogates. Yet despite the scandalous sin, as we saw, God's grace shines forth to accomplish his purposes, fulfilling the promise to bless Jacob with many offspring to form a covenant people for himself. And at the end of this 14 years of indentured service, Jacob longs to go home with his family, but he has no means for his own, of his own. He works for his uncle for another six years, and during that time, Genesis 30, 43 tells us that the man increased greatly and had large flock, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Which was clearly Yahweh's doing, but it did not go over well with Laban's sons or with greedy, scheming Laban. Genesis 31, 1 and 2 tells us Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. It was at this moment that Yahweh said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and so I will be with you. Genesis 31, 21, is exactly, that's exactly what Jacob does. He fled with all that he had, and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. But as we read, picking up now in verse 22, he's pursued by Laban and company, fleeing from the country he fled to in the first place. Which brings us to the first line of Yahweh's Exodus overture, Yahweh the God who saves, which prompts this question. Do I look to Yahweh to deliver me? Is he the one that I trust to rescue me? Do I look to Yahweh to deliver me? If not, who or what else are we looking for to save us from our enemies and that we have enemies, there is no doubt. Look at verse 22 and see why this is such a tense moment in Jacob's life. He brings his kinsmen, Laban brings his kinsmen with him and pursued Jacob for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Now this is as much of a high-speed chase as you're going to get in the Bible, but it's a serious danger to God's covenant partner, Jacob. He's given himself a three-day head start when all of the men of Laban were as busy as they would be shearing sheep. He has a three-day head start when he chooses to leave Laban, but after seven days of catch-up, Laban is hot on his heels. 
The pursuit has sinister overtones as the word is often used in the Bible of hostile situations, military conflicts. And so it would seem that Laban and his crew have it in for Jacob, whose concern would no doubt be for his wives, his children, and his flocks. Now this will not be the last time God's people, descended from Jacob, would find themselves fleeing years of oppression, having plundered their oppressors at Yahweh's direction, and then facing a threatening pursuit at their back. In Exodus 14.5 and following, we read this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea. Laban chases Jacob and overtakes him and camps in the hill country of Gilead. In Exodus, the people panic. But through Moses, Yahweh assures them, saying, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And as we hear in the Exodus overture in Genesis 31, This wasn't the first time that Yahweh had intervened when his covenant people were being threatened by hostile pursuit. In verse 24, what happens? God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, watch yourself. Be careful, Laban. Not to say anything to Jacob, either good, or bad. In other words, Yahweh is warning Laban not to step over the bounds of his authority to think that he actually has authority to judge Jacob for better or for worse. Jacob belongs to God and not to Laban. And so here in Genesis 31 verse 24, what happens is that God is going to bat for his people. He's never going to throw us under the bus. He's never going to leave us out to dry. That isn't who he is. He shows up to deliver us from the threats and pursuits of wicked people. I'm sure many of you heard the report back in December of the 17 hostages that escaped after 62 days of being held captive by a gang in Haiti. Among them was a baby and a three-year-old toddler. While, they're being, while they were being held hostage, they gathered multiple times daily to pray and to worship. And they decided after time had gone on that they would make an effort to escape. But they would only do so at a time agreed upon by all of them as they submitted to praying together. They were waiting for being united on, a, on the timing of when that would happen. And on December 15th, they decided as a group that they would flee. When they sensed the timing was right, as the report goes, they found a way to open the door that was closed and blocked. They filed silently to the path they had chosen to follow and quickly left the place that they were, despite the fact that there were numerous guards close by. They walked for hours in the dark, apparently navigating by the stars so they knew which direction they were going, and at dawn they found someone who called for help, and all 17 of them were brought home. The Lord can do this. It isn't too hard for him. Is Yahweh the one that we trust to deliver us even in life's diciest of moments? Jacob was certainly faced with one of those. Laban was warned, but the text goes on to say in verse 25 that Laban overtook Jacob. And if you're reading this for the first time, what's going to happen? Will this greedy, malicious, deceptive Laban listen to God's voice or will he not? As he camps by Jacob in the hill country of Gilead, it would appear that he's not. Yahweh tells Jacob not to speak. Yahweh tells Laban not to speak to Jacob. And yet what follows is one of the longest, most idiotic diatribes in the whole book of Genesis. Jacob is not threatened by swords and spears at this point. 
but by a weaponry of words wielded by a narcissistic uncle. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul, he writes the following. He says this, Understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And without the with the exception of disobedience to parents, you could put Laban's picture, if you had it, beside 2 Timothy 3, and it would fit. When Paul's reading the same Bible we're reading, so maybe humanly speaking, he drew on Laban for some inspiration of what he wrote there. So many of those expressions, they feature in Laban's speech to Jacob, which is just dripping with irony. In verse 26, Laban asks Jacob, what have you done? You have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. What have you done? That's exactly what Jacob asked Laban when Laban tricked him and gave him Leah instead of Rachel. Your daughters? I'm pretty sure they're Jacob's wives, Laban, that he paid a 14-year bride price for, and they weren't taken as hostages, Laban. They went willingly. Their silence is deafening condemnation of their father. Verses 27 and 28, Laban says, Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me that I may have sent you away with mirth and songs as tambourine and lyre? I, would have, I wanted to kiss my, my, my daughters and my grandchildren. You've done a foolish thing. That's a bit rich, isn't it, Laban? Accusing Jacob of deceit? This guy's the worst. He has the, the nerve to complain that he didn't get to throw a going away party. For family members, he wasn't willing to give anything to when Jacob wanted to go home six years ago. And he's not even done yet. Even though he's rendered judgment on Jacob when Yahweh warned him not to. Look at verses, the, the, the next set of verses, 39 to 40. Sorry, not that, is that right? Not that far. He says, it's my power to do you harm. Verse 29, sorry. It's in my power to do you harm, is it? No, Laban, is it? But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to do anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away, because you've longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? This is the second nub of Laban's issue. The first issue that Laban has is that Jacob took his family, even though it's Jacob's family. And the second is that Jacob took Laban's gods, even though Jacob didn't take Laban's gods. As readers, we already have the inside scoop. Back in verse 19, it tells us that Rachel stole her father's household gods. And so Jacob responds to Laban. He says, he answers the first charge. Why did I flee? Because I was afraid. I thought you would take my wives from me, your daughters from force. Which is not an unreasonable assumption, knowing Laban. But in response to the accusation of stealing Laban's gods, Jacob says, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Now that's a very rash and hasty thing he says. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. The writer goes out of his way to show us Jacob's innocence in the matter. He didn't do it, and he had no idea that Rachel did. And this brings us to a second musical line in this Exodus overture. In Yahweh's salvation anthem, which prompts this question, Do I look to Yahweh to vindicate me? Do I trust God to be the one to clear my name before my enemies and accusers? Do I look to Yahweh to vindicate me? The tension ramps up again here because Jacob, confident that no one has taken Laban's gods, has spoken so strongly about what would happen to anyone if they had indeed stolen them. And the writer, he draws this out in a painstaking way in verse 33. you got Laban, he goes into Jacob's tent and he feels all the way around and he doesn't find them. And then he goes into Leah's tent and he feels all the way around and he can't find them. And then he goes into Bilhah and, and, and uh, Zilpah's tent and he, he feels all around and he can't find them. And then he goes out of Leah's tent, tent and finally he goes into Rachel's tent. And we know Rachel has the gods. Will he find them? No. 
Because in verse 34, we're told that Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban just looks like a bumbling fool feeling about the tent, but he did not find them. Laban's speech and Laban's actions are making him look more and more foolish by the minute. And then adding insult to injury, Rachel says to her dad in verse 35, don't be angry that I can't get off my camel. Because the way of woman is upon me. And in this, Rachel shows utter contempt for the gods of her father and her father by extension. You see, original readers of this account would know full well the implications of Rachel sitting on statues of her father's gods during her period. If there were some junior highs in the audience, maybe there would have been some snickers of laughter. Leviticus 15, 19 and 20 reads, When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge is in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And now there's uncleanness of, because of discharges for males as well as for females. Obviously those are different. But what's happening here is that Laban's gods are being portrayed as impotent menstrual cloths that cannot hear him looking because they're deaf. And they can't call out to him that they might be found because they are mute and they cannot protect themselves from being stolen because they are impotent. And all of Israel reading this account hears of the uncleanness of the idols of Laban. They are useless and they are worthless as all idols are and Laban has become like what he worships as is the case with all idolatry. He looks and he looks and he looks and he searched but he did not find the household gods. And thus Jacob is proven innocent. He is vindicated before his father-in-law. And 20 years of pent-up anger burst from Jacob to demonstrate to Laban that indeed Yahweh has vindicated him. There's a key word in this section showcasing the Exodus overture, Yahweh's salvation theme. It's found in verse 42. If you just jump down there for a moment. Jacob says in verse 42, he says at the end of the speech, and we'll, we'll, come, we'll, we'll go back in a moment, But at the end of the speech, Jacob says to Laban, God saw my affliction. That word affliction is used only in two other places in the Old Testament, as pointed out by Gordon Wenham. The first is Exodus 3.7. When Yahweh says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian. The second time we see this word is in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7, which says this, Then we cried to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. So what the Lord does in Jacob's life, here in Exodus 30, uh, Genesis 31, he is going to do in the lives of Jacob's descendants. Yahweh delivers his people from the wicked and he vindicates his people before those who would accuse and those who would oppress. And what he does in the exodus from Egypt, that this overture in Genesis anticipates, that is realized in the second exodus that Jesus Christ leads, which is an exodus from bondage to sin and to Satan and to death. 
The Passover lamb has died, silencing the accusations of the evil one, silencing our conscience and our hearts which condemn us when we are reminded of our past sin. Our Passover lamb has freed us from the power of sin's enslavement and released us from the shackles of the fear of death. It begins with Jacob. We see it in the Exodus. We see it ultimately in Jesus Christ. Yahweh delivers and he vindicates. And as the Apostle Paul writes, you can bring whatever you want to the table. You can bring death, you can bring life, you can bring angels, you can bring present, future, powers, height, depth. You can bring anything else in all creation, including those who strut around and speak like Laban. Bring them all, bring every single one of them, and you will find that not one of them can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because Yahweh saves and Yahweh vindicates. And that's why, in light of Yahweh's vindication before Jacob, before Laban, Jacob holds nothing back in verse 36. What is my sin? What is my offense? Why have you chased me down? He's clear of the charge of stealing Laban's gods, as per verse 37. He's free of the charge of taking Laban's daughters and grandchildren and flocks. If anything... As Jacob recounts in verses 38 to 41, Laban is the one who's cheated Jacob, not Jacob deceiving and cheating Laban. For 20 years, which is it's rare to find someone in the same job today for 20 years, but Jacob says, for 20 years I've been in your employ. Verse 38, he says, I took care of all the pregnant sheep and goats so that they didn't miscarry. In verse 39, he bore himself the cost of animals eaten by wild beasts or stolen by day or by night. This is highly unusual. This wouldn't be normally in a shepherd's contract. Owners of flocks wouldn't hold shepherds responsible for loss due to predators or for night theft. But Laban held Jacob responsible. In verse 40, Jacob relays that he did all of this in the difficult environment of the Middle East with its blistering hot days and its frigid nights that resulted in sleeplessness. And I tell you, that's what it would have done me in. If you want to break me, just take my sleep and I'll do whatever you want. Hmm? 20 years he did this. 20 years. And that's what he cranks it up to in verse 41. 20 years I've been in your house. 14 years for your two daughters, six years for my flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. And you're going to accuse me. you got to be kidding. You're the one in the wrong, Laban. And then comes Jacob's powerful conclusion in verse 42. This is a, a landmark statement in Jacob's life. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and, and this, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, on my side, Laban. He is on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Laban has been weighed. Laban has been measured. Laban has been found wanting. Jacob is vindicated by the God of Abraham who sees, by the fear of Isaac who knows. And as Jacob's descendants would sing on the other side of the sea, vindicated before Pharaoh's drowned army, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Yahweh is awesome. That's why he's called the fear of Isaac here. All his enemies should tremble before him. As should all who pursue and oppress his people. The fear of Isaac won't stand for that. He will deliver. He will vindicate. He will vindicate the Christian wife who is ridiculed and abandoned by her non-Christian husband. He will vindicate the sheep wounded by a spiritual abuser. He will vindicate the senior who has been taken advantage of by their caregivers. He will vindicate the high school student mocked because they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He will vindicate the forgiven sinner tormented by Satan's ceaseless accusations of their sinful past. Will you trust him to vindicate you? Psalm 52.6 says, The righteous shall see And fear, 
and shall laugh at the one who boasts of evil, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Such was Laban in this Exodus overture. Such was Pharaoh in the actual Exodus. And such are all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, in the second Exodus. Listen to how this note is struck in Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 9. This is what he says. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. There's a musician I listen to. I can't remember the song. I'd have to look it up. He has a line of encouragement for Christians when faced with mockery and contempt and accusation from others. He says, take a look at their knees. He's like serious. Actually look at their knees. Just let your eyes glance down. And let them serve as a visual reminder that if those knees don't bow in willing submission to the Lord Jesus Christ before he comes, they will bow in unavoidable subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. On that day, as Jesus expressed to one church in Revelation, there will be vindication which Jacob experienced before his uncle Laban, who is exposed as an idolatrous fool, and who still does not learn, and who cannot keep his mouth shut. Which does serve as a cautionary tale to any who continue to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. You should take a look at your own knees, because those will bow also. But friend, let them bow today. And cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ that he would deliver you and vindicate you before his son on the day of his glorious coming. Laban is nothing like that. He responds to all of this in verse 43. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. Are you kidding me? Is he... So delusional? Apparently he is. But he's also trying to save face. He goes on, what can I do this day for my daughters or for their children whom they have born? And then he has this, what he must think is a, I mean, it's part of the sort of culture of the time, but he says, come now, let us make a covenant. Let's cut a covenant between you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And here we come to the third line of music in this Exodus Overture. The first prompts this question, do I trust Yahweh to deliver deliver me? The second prompted this question, do I trust Yahweh to vindicate me? And the third prompts this question, do I trust Yahweh to establish me? You see, the Lord doesn't just merely deliver his people from bondage, and he won't only vindicate his people that he saves, He also marks them off as his special people. And so we should ask, do I trust Yahweh to establish me? Do I believe that through faith in Jesus Christ, Yahweh will forever set me up as one of his blessed people? When Yahweh sent Moses as his chosen vessel to deliver the descendants of Jacob in the Exodus, he spoke to Moses and he said this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Then he says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Yahweh is establishing a distinct people for his glory to bless the nations. 
And that comes through in this Exodus overture of Genesis 31. We have to listen closely, though, because it's clearly there, but it's not necessarily obvious at first. If you look with me from verses 45 down to the end of the chapter, and even leaking into chapter 32, there's a, there are multiple pairs. I just want to point that out. There are two stone monuments. There's a pillar in verse 45, and there's a pile or a heap in verse 46. They're called by two names. Laban the Aramean gives them an Aramaic name, and Jacob the Hebrew gives them a Hebrew name, and they both have the same meaning, heap of witness. Those two pillars, two names in two languages, and then there are two invocations made. In verse 53, Laban, who is a polytheist, which is someone who believes that there are multiple gods, he has his precious household idols, and he calls upon, notice this, the God of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, Nahor, the gods of Abraham and Nahor's father, Terah. So he's a polytheist, and he's calling on, basically, he's just, I'll just call on them all. So there's two invocations. But Jacob will have none of this because like his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, he's not a worshiper of multiple gods, but the one true God, Yahweh. So in verse 53, he swears by the fear of his father, Isaac. So you've got two pillars, you've got two names in two different languages, you've got two invocations, and then there are two directions that are traveled. Laban departs in verse 55, and he goes back to Padan Aram, to his own place, to his own home, and then Jacob, he goes on his way to the land of his fathers, as God has told him. And so what these two stones and two languages and two religions and two destinations do is they distinguish between two peoples. There's a line being drawn in the sand here between those who belong to Yahweh and those who do not belong to Yahweh. And in the end, Jacob is established as belonging to Yahweh, but not Laban. And in a fascinating twist, acknowledgement of this establishment is actually at the urging of Laban, not Jacob. The writer of Genesis records not another word of Jacob speaking to Laban after the vindicating statement of verse 42. But Laban doesn't shut up. Laban needs this agreement. Jacob doesn't. Jacob is vindicated. Laban is rebuked. Laban recognizes that the fear of Isaac is on Jacob's side, which means there are new rules. I need to set up some new parameters. And that's why he's the one to pursue a covenant with Jacob and not the other way around. As Gordon Wenham writes, when foreigners seek to make covenants or oaths with the patriarchs, it is an acknowledgement of their superiority. So by wanting to enter into this agreement with Jacob, Laban is admitting that Yahweh is on Jacob's side and that Jacob is greater and that God has established Jacob. That being said, he is still full of himself. He thinks he's doing something for his daughters and grandchildren. He thinks he's providing protection for his daughters so that Jacob doesn't marry someone else and abandon them in verse 50. You've got to catch the irony there, right? Don't you dare oppress my daughters, Jacob, that I used as pawns to oppress you for 14 years. Don't marry someone else, Jacob, even though you're married to both of my daughters because I deceived you when you were supposed to be marrying Rachel and you ended up marrying Leah. Laban really is an absurd and sad and small man who's acting like a big shot, even though he knows he's not. He's desperate. And he's rather incessant over what is being put into place. This heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness. He says it multiple times. That I will not pass over this heap to you and will not pass over this heap and this pillar to do harm. So the line of demarcation is is clear. And in this we see that God has established Jacob as his covenant partner. When Laban leaves, we're told simply that he goes home, verse 55. When Jacob goes on his way, the beginning of chapter 32, we're told that the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And this is grace in Jacob's life. It is sheer grace that we have this exodus overture 
in the life of Jacob, which just begins to grow and, and fill out as we go through the scriptures. We read this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 10. Listen to what it says. And we know what's grace in Jacob's life because of the mass that he was up to this point and all of the situation with Rachel and Leah and the surrogate wives, slave wives, and so on. We've seen the train wreck that this is. So for, for God to be calling Jacob his covenant partner and establishing him here after delivering him and vindicating him, it, it, it's grace up and down. And, and we hear this theme again in the history of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, you are a, this is the Lord speaking, you are a people holy to Yahweh your God, sorry Moses. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You see, God chose Jacob, the younger twin, as his covenant partner. And by grace, he delivered him. And he vindicated him. And he established him. And then God set his love on Jacob's descendants because he chose to set his love upon them. And he delivered them. And he vindicated them. And he established them as his people. And all of this points forward to God lavishing his love upon us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, our Passover lamb, he died to save us. And so by grace through faith and the cross death of Jesus, God delivers us from sin and Satan and death and God will vindicate us before our enemies. And the scriptures say that the God of peace will one day soon crush Satan under our feet and he will establish us as his blessed people. So I am asking, do we trust him to do that work? came across a story I had forgotten all about this week that captures in a compelling way why we should. You might remember it. It's a story of a father who never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult or that such a trip could teach him so much about God's outrageous grace. He tells a story about his middle daughter who had been previously adopted by another family and then their, his family had adopted that daughter later. But the previous family never quite integrated this adopted child into their family of biological children. And it's rather sad, for one reason or another, whenever his daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they left the adopted daughter with the family friend. And usually, at least in the child's mind, he says, this happened because she did something wrong that meant that she missed out on the trip. And he says once, once he found out about the story, he made plans to take her to Disney World. And though he thought he had mastered the Disney World drill from previous experiences, what he didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in his newest daughter. She started stealing food when she could have just asked for it instead. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were just loud enough to be heard and carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. So as this behavior was going on, the dad, a few days before the trip to Florida, he pulls his daughter into his lap and he talks through her latest escapade and she says to him, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And though that thought hadn't entered his mind, he says that her downward spiral started to suddenly make sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. 
she tried that test and failed several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth that a little girl could think of. Now in response, as the, that the father credits to the grace of God, he said, is this trip something we are doing as a family? She nodded, her eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we are not leaving you behind. And then he tells about the first day after the trip had finally come, and he's putting her to bed, and he asks, how was your first day at Disney World? And she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I was yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, God has made us his own. We belong to him. We are a part of his family. And this as a gift of his grace. Because it certainly wasn't because we are good. But delivering us, vindicating us, and establishing us, we belong to Yahweh. And his salvation anthem becomes the theme song of our lives for today and for tomorrow and for eternity. And on the theme of music, I want you to just hear this again before we sing. This is from Zephaniah chapter 3. So listen carefully and relish in the word of God and what it says. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Deliverance and vindication. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He establishes as his people. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing.